Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. The Peter Schiff Show. I'm going to spend most of today's podcast talking about what's going on over in the emerging markets, in the currency markets, in the stock markets, what the speculators are doing, why they're doing it, why I think they're wrong, and why I think it creates an excellent opportunity uh, for investors to fade this trade and prepare for the ultimate reversal of these moves. But before I get into that, I want to talk about a few other topics of interest uh, that I noticed this week uh, prior to or happened after my last podcast. But before I do that, before I forget, I want to talk about Freedom Fest uh, in July. I'm going to be going to Freedom Fest again, as I do every year in July not the greatest time of the year to be in Las Vegas. Not that there's really a bad time to be in Las Vegas. You're pretty much going to have fun in Las Vegas whenever you go. But it is quite hot in July. Of course, I spend almost all my time indoors, so I really can't uh, feel the heat. And when I go out at night, of course, the sun is down. It's not quite as bad if you're doing something at, in the evening. But it is July 12th, I think, through the 14th. And if you haven't already registered, you can do it now. It's at the Paris Resort, not the greatest hotel, but it's all right. You know, nothing's that bad in Las Vegas, but the event is great. I'm going to be there again with my entire family, my wife, three kids. We will all be at Freedom Fest, so we'll be at our booth. You can come by if you have a chance to meet my wife and kids. Uh, you can say hello. I'm going to be participating in several events. I'm going to be doing a talk on Puerto Rico and the financial benefits, the tax incentives 
of working from and moving to Puerto Rico. Most of you should know by now I am Puerto Rican. Uh, Puerto Rico is my main home. I summer in Connecticut, but I am a resident of Puerto Rico. Uh, my business, Europe Pacific Asset Management, is based in Puerto Rico. My bank, Europe Pacific Bank, is based in Puerto Rico. Many of the people who listen to my podcasts are clients of my asset management company or of my bank, and so they're working with me in Puerto Rico. So I'm going to be discussing the reasons I did that uh, at uh, Freedom Fest. Also, I'm going to be doing a debate against Jeffrey Tucker and Gary Smith, uh, a Bitcoin debate. Is it real? Is it or is it tulip mania? All of you realize what side I am on. It's going to be moderated by Naomi Brockwell, who is known as the Bitcoin girl. In fact, I had her on my old radio show, the Peter Schiff show, and I sure wish I had listened to her and, and bought a bunch of Bitcoin. Obviously, I'd have a lot more money today than I do now had I bought Bitcoin. Uh, but she was on my show uh, and now she's the moderator. Obviously, she's very biased, right? Because she's the Bitcoin girl and she's moderating the paddle. So I'm probably going to end up arguing with her as well as my opponents in the debate. Uh, but I'm sure she'll try her best uh, to uh, to be uh, somewhat uh, neutral uh, in being the moderator. But in any event, I'm also going to be doing my normal talk, uh, how to profit from the return to stagflation. That's going to be on Friday the 13th. Ominous Friday the 13th, and also I'm on a panel uh, on the 12th discussing the current housing bubble. So I've got four different things that I'm participating in, but of course it's not just me. There are a lot of other great speakers at Freedom Fest. I listen to several of them myself. Uh, so definitely, if you haven't come, come. If you've been before, come again. It's not too late to book your reservations, book your airfare. And by the way, I've got a promotional code SHIFT. So when you register and just go to freedomfest.com or call up their phone number and register, use my promo code SHIFT and you'll get 100 bucks off on your registration. So looking forward to seeing everybody in Freedom Fest uh, coming up uh, in what just, uh, just about a month, just over a month from now in Las Vegas. So one of the economic stories that came out this week was the first quarter productivity numbers. And... The number was supposed to come out at up 0.7. Instead, it came out at just up 0.4, which was a very low number. It was uh, the lowest number in quite some time. And of course, what that means is that if you are counting on productivity to keep a lid on consumer prices, then you're in trouble, right? Because that is the only way to prevent prices from rising when you're creating all this money is to have an increase in productivity. Now, if an increase in productivity masks an underlying inflation, that doesn't mean there's no inflation. Remember, a lot of people think inflation is what happens to prices. It's not. Inflation is what happens to money. That's where the word comes from. Inflate means expand, and prices don't expand. Prices go up, prices go down. What expands? The money supply. It expands during inflation. It contracts during deflation. A result of an expansion of the money supply inflation is that prices tend to rise, but they might not rise. If productivity is rising faster, prices might not go up at all. In fact, it's possible for the money supply to be inflated and for prices to go down. Right? But that doesn't mean there isn't inflation, because if you didn't expand the money supply, prices would have gone down even more. So by preventing prices from falling, 
inflation is having an effect on prices, which is detrimental to consumers because consumers benefit from lower prices. Now, if inflation robs you of the benefit of increased productivity, that's still an inflation tax. That is still harming the economy. But the modern-day bankers and Wall Street or everybody, they're only worried about inflation if it makes prices go up, not if it prevents them from going down. Although now they actually want inflation to, to make prices go up. They just don't want inflation to make prices to go up too much. In fact, if inflation doesn't make prices go up enough, that is supposedly a problem, right? Inflation is too low. That's what's been fueling a lot of the monetary policy. What did move up uh, was labor costs. They jumped up a little bit more than expected. So this is inflationary news, right? You're not getting productivity. Productivity is what can mask uh, the inflation because the natural tendency in a free market is for prices to fall. Why? Because as businesses become more productive, you can produce more stuff for fewer resources. So as the cost of producing stuff goes down, businesses can sell the stuff for less money. Now, the conventional wisdom is that's bad, right? Because, oh, businesses are selling things for less money, so that's bad. No, it's not. As long as the margins are not going down, if your costs are going down, and then you pass on those lower costs to your consumer in lower prices, that doesn't mean that you're going to lose money. In fact, you'll probably make more money. Because what happens when you reduce price? You increase volume. The lower the price, the more stuff you sell. So if your costs go down and your prices go down, so your margins maintained, but now you sell more stuff because the price point is lower because your customers don't have an unlimited uh, amount of money. They have to budget their money. And so if you can offer a lower price, right, more things can be sold. I mean, a lot more people have cell phones today than had them 20 years ago when they were a lot more expensive. So do you think cell phone companies make more money today selling cell phones to everybody? Then they made 20, 30 years ago, selling them just to the super rich, right? They make a lot more money now because everybody can afford them because the prices are down. So the whole idea that businesses need rising prices to generate profits is just pure nonsense. I mean, that's part of the propaganda that the central bankers are using to justify creating inflation. And the fact that we got these weak Q1 productivity numbers uh, is just an indication that we're going to start to see uh, consumer prices rising uh, much faster. It's not going to be symmetrical. The Fed's talking about symmetry where, oh, we're just going to be up above 2% by a little bit, just like we were below it by a little bit. We're going to be above it by a lot. Another piece of news is on consumer credit, April consumer credit growing by much smaller than anticipated. In fact, it's the slowest growth in seven months. Now, of course, I like the fact that consumers aren't taking on more debt as fast as was expected, because in the long run, that is a good thing if our consumers are not going deeper into debt. But if you've got a debt-fueled bubble, and if it's dependent on consumers continuing to go deeper into debt, to spend money they don't have, to buy things they can't afford and don't need, these are signs that the bubble is reaching its, uh, you know, its saturation point, that maybe the air is starting to come out. This is bad economic news, right? If you're counting on a bubble, if you're counting on consumers to spend, if you think that's what grows the economy, and now you found out that consumers aren't borrowing as much, what does that mean? Well, that means that they're not going to be spending as much. And so even as prices are rising, which I just mentioned because we're having weaker productivity, if prices are going up, 
and consumers are borrowing less, well, that really means they're spending less because obviously if prices are going up and wages are not, or they're not keeping pace, then consumers would have to be increasing their amount of borrowing to maintain their level of spending in real terms, which obviously they are not doing. But of course, you know, all this bad economic news continues to be ignored uh, by the market. Stock markets, of course, had positive weeks, ignoring again the carnage going on in the emerging markets, which I will get to shortly. Before I do, I just want to talk a little bit about an article that I read about the Medicare trust funds that are going to be running out of money now sooner than expected. 2026 is when the Medicare trust fund will be out of money. That's eight years from now. So that's not too far into the future. Social Security, according to this new report, will be insolvent by 2034. Let me see. Is that about when I'm scheduled to retire? Pretty much. Actually, I think I'll, I'll be over 70 years old. I'll be 2034. Um, I'll be 71 in 2034. So in theory, I should be retiring before that. I should be retiring you know, late uh, 2028, maybe 2029. Uh, but, you know, if I live to a ripe old age, that'll be pretty early in my retirement. Of course, I am on the cusp of the baby boom. I was born in 1963, and I think the end of the baby boom was 1964. But basically, just as the baby boom generation is all in retirement, right, that's when Social Security is going to be insolvent. Medicare, of course, according to this uh, number, insolvent much sooner, but the point that I want to make is that all this is a bunch of nonsense. Medicare and Medicaid, Social Security, they are insolvent right now. We don't have to wait until 2026 or 2034. We're insolvent today in 2018. Now, the reason that the, uh, the study says that Medicare will be insolvent in 2026 is because that's the year that they run out of money. Although, the trust funds don't actually run out of money because the trust funds don't have any money. What the trust funds have are treasury bonds, government IOUs. So what the study says is that in 2026, the Medicare trust fund will run out of government IOUs and will therefore be bankrupt. Well, the fact that the only thing the trust funds have is government IOUs means they are bankrupt right now. Because what value do those government IOUs give the trust funds? Because the government is the trust fund. So it's an IOU to itself, right? An IOU to yourself is worthless, right? I mean, if I write myself a check for a million dollars and stick that check in some kind of fund for myself, can I say that I got a million dollars in that fund because I've got an uncashed check made out to myself from me for a million dollars? Of course not, because that check is simultaneously an asset and a liability. So it, it equals out, right? If I write a check and give it to somebody else, then the other person can count it as an asset, assuming they know the check's not going to bounce, right? It's somebody. It can be somebody else's asset because it's my liability. But an asset can't be a liability and an asset to the same person. It's either one or the other. Now, if the U.S. government sells a bond, to a third party, like, you know, a private citizen or a foreign government, right? That treasury bond is an asset to that foreign government or to that private citizen because it's not also its own liability, 
And if I own a government bond, the government owes me money. It's my asset. It's the government's liability. But if the government owns its own bond, then it's not an asset or a liability. It just cancels itself out. So when the government sets up a trust fund and shoves its own IOUs in there, there's no money there. So the fact that in 2026 it's going to run out of assets that it doesn't even have is meaningless. Now, some people might think, well, wait a minute. You know, It has these bonds that it can sell to help pay the benefits. See, a lot of the benefits come from the taxes that are paid in by the current people who are paying the Medicare tax or Social Security. You have these Social Security taxes that are being paid by workers and they go into these so-called trust funds and then the money goes out to people who have already retired and if there's a shortfall between what the government collects and what they pay out, they sell one of the bonds to, to cover the difference, right? Well, the idea is by 2026, the Medicare trust fund will be out of those bonds, right? And by 2034, the Social Security trust fund will be out of those bonds. Now, my feeling is both trust funds will run out of bonds sooner than that. But the bottom line is, what difference does it make? See, let's assume there was no trust fund at all. There was no Social Security trust fund, no Medicare trust fund. And let's say the government didn't collect as much money in Medicare taxes as it paid in Medicare benefits. How would it fund the difference? Well, it would sell a bond. It would just go to the market and sell some treasury bonds to raise money to make up the shortfall. Well, what does it do when it has a trust fund? Well, the trust fund sells a government bond to raise the cash to make up the shortfall. In other words, it's the exact same difference. It doesn't matter if the government is selling a bond from its own account or if it's selling a bond from a trust fund account. It's still a bond that the government has to sell. So the existence of a trust fund does nothing to make Social Security any more solvent than it would be if there was no trust fund. Now, if the trust funds were full of foreign government bonds, if they were you know, German government bonds or Japanese government bonds, well, then it would be an actual asset because now they can sell something that wasn't also their own liability. Or if they had corporate bonds in there or if they had gold bullion in there, right? then they would actually sell an asset. But they don't have any of that. All they have is their own IOUs. So if the um, Social Security Trust Fund wants money, it has to get it from the government. It says, here, here's my IOU. And now the government has to go out and raise the money, which is exactly what it would do if there was no trust fund at all. So the entire trust fund is an illusion. It's just there to create the false appearance that there's actually something behind uh, the government's promises other than just a Ponzi scheme. When there's nothing there, there are no trust funds, there never were. I mean, this concept was there from the beginning to try to con voters into thinking that Social Security was insurance, right, or Medicare. They called the taxes that you pay premiums. They called people who are entitled to these benefits beneficiaries. They're be the whole thing is designed, Social Security and Medicare is designed to look like an insurance program. When it's not, it's just a government-run Ponzi scheme. It's just a giant intergenerational welfare program. That's all it is. There's no money set aside. There's no reserve. There's nothing to, to run out of money. They have no money now. The whole thing was insolvent from inception. And the only reason that the government could ever make payments on Social Security or Medicare is because it can go into debt to do it, because it has to sell a treasury bond. Well, what if they can't? What if the market doesn't want the bonds? 
right? What if the U.S. can't afford to pay the interest? Well, then the Federal Reserve has to buy all those bonds, and then they have to create the money to do it, and then you have massive inflation, which is exactly what's ultimately going to happen, which is why nobody who's counting on Social Security is ever going to get paid. I'm not going to get Social Security. I mean, if I get money, it's going to be worthless. Now, fortunately, I'm not going to need it. Right, because I've already planned for my retirement. I got plenty of foreign assets. I got plenty of gold. I got plenty of mining stocks. So I don't need any of this government worthless Social Security. But there are a lot of people out there that are actually counting on Social Security for their retirement. They're not going to get anything. I mean, they may get paid. In fact, you know, you could go back to my dad's old book, The Biggest Con, and you know, we sell those books at Shift. Uh, uh, shiftbooks.com. In fact, I'm not even sure if we have any biggest cons left. In fact, I think we're all out of them. Uh, but it's a great book. I mean, you may be able to find it used somewhere on the internet. But my dad in that book actually quotes from uh, the congressional record, and it was a debate. And William Proxmire, Senator Proxmire, was talking, and they were talking about Social Security back then. This is back in like the 1960s or 70s, a long time ago. And they talked about you know, whether or not, you know, Social Security was solvent or, you know, they were they were dealing with a problem. And Proxmire said that we never have to worry about Social Security benefits being paid because he said the government has the ability to print money. And so as long as the government can print money, Social Security benefits will be paid. Then he said this, and I'm pretty much quoting it verbatim, the benefits may not be worth anything when the recipients receive them, but they will be paid. So in other words, here you have Proxmire in Congress reassuring everybody that Social Security payments are going to be made. It's just that they may be worthless when the recipients receive them. Now, of course, if Social Security checks are worthless, that means all checks denominated in dollars are worthless. I mean, you have a sitting U.S. senator saying nothing to worry about because we're just going to pay everybody off with worthless money. Right. That is a huge concern, right, that we're going to, you know, print dollars into oblivion because we don't want to default on our Social Security commitments. But if we actually had a real fund, a real trust fund with real assets in it, then you potentially could rely on it. And then maybe you should be concerned that that trust fund may run out of money. But when the only thing you have in your trust fund is your own IOUs, then it's immaterial whether you run out of your own IOUs or not. Because there's no limit to how many of your own IOUs you can create. Right? I mean, I can write as many checks to myself as I want. I can put as many zeros on the numbers as I want. Right? I'm, I'm writing my own checks. So the government can keep writing IOUs. You know, The problem is going to be selling the IOUs, finding a buyer that's not the Federal Reserve. Of course, Proxmire admitted that the buyer is going to be the Federal Reserve. That's what he meant when he said that the benefits will be worthless when they're received. It's because the Federal Reserve is going to have to pay all the money because the trust funds have nothing. They've got nothing but worthless IOUs. Which brings me to my main topic of this podcast. And I, I can't believe that I've gotten so far into it and I didn't even get to my main topic. But And that is what is going on with emerging markets. And you know, if you've been paying attention, the emerging market currencies have been getting beaten up. So have been the stocks. In emerging markets. Uh, if you're a client of Europe Pacific Capital, you probably have some money invested in emerging markets. You know, I've got an emerging market fund that is pretty much exclusively emerging markets. But also in my managed accounts, uh, we have, you know, allocations, smaller allocations to emerging markets. 
And, and so those stocks are all going down and those currencies are all going down. And, and this is the reason. And I'm going to kind of lay this out there and I'm going to tell you why I think that, you know, the people who are speculating on this are completely wrong. And why this is creating, I think, a tremendous opportunity for people who actually understand what's going on to get some incredible bargains in EM currencies and in uh, EM stocks. So here is the, the, the big picture and what the speculators are keying on. So right now, as you know, and I've been talking about this, the budget deficits have exploded, right? So the national debt right now or the budget deficit is about a trillion dollars a year, which has to be financed, right? The government has to go out and borrow that money. Now, way back, you know, when we were doing trillion dollar a year deficits in uh, 2009, 2010, the Federal Reserve was creating the money to buy all those bonds, right? So it didn't have that big an impact on the bond market. It had a bigger impact on the currency market because the money supply, the supply of dollars was growing as the Federal Reserve was creating dollars to buy up all those bonds. But right now, the Federal Reserve is not only not going to do that, at least claiming it's not going to do that, it's claiming it's going to do the opposite. It is going to be shrinking its balance sheet. Now, supposedly that's already started, but if you actually look at the Fed's balance sheet, it's barely declined. But it, the pace of the decline is supposed to pick up later this year. And I think they're going to be doing $50 billion a month of uh, quantitative tightening, where the Federal Reserve allows... $50 billion a month of treasuries to mature, meaning that it's going to be asking the treasury for the money back that it created to buy the bonds. And then when the Federal Reserve gets those mo that money, it destroys it, right? So instead of the money supply expanding like it did when they were doing quantitative easing, it's going to be contracting. The Federal Reserve is going to be taking money out of circulation and putting bonds into circulation. And, and so if you figure that you're going to have $600 billion a year in borrowing to repay the Fed and a trillion a year in borrowing to cover the budget deficit. That's $1.6 trillion. My guess is that the numbers are going to be higher in the deficit numbers. So I think you're going to be looking at closer to or maybe above $2 trillion a year of bonds coming into the market at the same time the money supply will be contracting because the Fed is, is destroying the money it gets for the bonds that the, the Treasury is forced to redeem. Now, the idea is, okay, wait a minute. The money supply is going to be shrinking. That is going to create a dollar shortage. There won't be enough dollars because the Federal Reserve is taking dollars away from the market. Of course, everybody needs dollars, right? It's the reserve currency. People are trading in dollars. And in particular, the emerging markets need dollars because a lot of companies in the emerging market borrow in dollars, right? And, and so they need to get dollars. And here's the other part of it. If, if the U.S. Treasury is borrowing $2 trillion a year, both to fund its operating deficit and to repay the Federal Reserve as it shrinks its balance sheet, it is going to crowd out a lot of other borrowers who want to borrow dollars but who can't because the Treasury is borrowing up everything. Right? If everybody is going to be buying treasuries, if you're going to have $2 trillion worth of private money going into U.S. Treasury bonds, where isn't that money going? I mean, maybe that was the money that was going to buy emerging market debt in dollars, but now it's going to buy treasuries because there's, there's all these treasuries that they have to buy. So in other words, 
the U.S. government is going to be sucking up all the capital, all the investment capital from all around the world that might otherwise go into these emerging markets. Now, for some reason, the crowding out is not concerning anybody in the U.S., right? Like all these huge deficits aren't going to crowd out investment in America, right? Nobody's worried about that because, look, a lot of companies fund investment in America just by selling stock, right? They don't have to actually go out and borrow any money. They just, they just, you know, they just issue new shares of stock. But the, the, the world is worried about the emerging markets, especially if you believe that the dollar is going to go up. And, of course, this whole theory about the Fed shrinking the money supply and there being a dollar shortage because money supply is contracting, well, obviously, they think the dollar is going to go up. This is particularly problematic for the emerging market economies who have borrowed in dollars, but they earn in local currency. So for American companies, they think, well, it doesn't matter, right? They earn dollars, and so their debt's in dollars. No big deal. But if you're in an emerging market and you're earning a different currency, but now your, your, your repayment is in dollars and the dollars are going up, and of course, interest rates are going to be going up because everybody's going to have to compete with the Treasury that is now selling $2 trillion in the market where it used to not sell any. because and, and now the money supply is shrinking instead of expanding. So everybody believes that this is going to cause a huge crisis. In fact, you've got central bankers from a lot of these emerging market economies complaining. They're actually saying the Fed has to call off its plans to shrink its balance sheet or to shrink it slower because it's destabilizing the global economy. And this, you know, of course, is part of the problem with having the U.S. dollar as the reserve currency. But the bottom line is, as logical as this all sounds, it's wrong. It ain't going to happen because this is what everybody is missing. There is no way that the Federal Reserve is going to be able to shrink its balance sheet. There is no way that the Treasury is going to be able to find private buyers for all this debt at interest rates that are low enough not to collapse the U.S. economy. I mean, if the Fed actually does what it's claiming it's going to do, and if the budget deficits are what they're forecast to be, how high would interest rates have to be in order for private buyers to decide they don't want to buy emerging market bonds that have much higher yields, they want to park their money in U.S. Treasuries? I mean, because right now the yield is 3%. I mean, how exciting is that? I mean, all this money all around the world is going to settle for that lower rate of return? I mean, who, who, who can settle for something that low? I don't think that it's going to be possible for the government to sell enough bonds to pay for all its spending and to repay the Fed at that low rate of interest. Interest rates are going to have to be a lot higher than what people think in order for this to be accomplished. But of course, if interest rates are a lot higher, there is no way the U.S. economy can keep expanding. I mean, this whole theory is based on the U.S. economy continuing to expand without recession. Because obviously, if the economy weakens, then the Fed calls off the whole thing, right? The Fed stops selling bonds and starts buying more bonds, right? And ultimately, that is what's going to happen. Because I believe that the amount of rate hikes that have already taken place is already enough to push the economy into recession. Recession is already long overdue. So all of these speculators are preparing for something that's not going to happen. There's not going to be a shortage of dollars. There's going to be a massive surplus of dollars. All these huge deficits are not good for the dollar. They are bad for the dollar. See, that's what's counterintuitive. They're arguing that because the deficits are exploding, 
that that is going to be good for the dollar. But if you go back and look historically to the correlation, the dollar is correlated to the deficits in the opposite way. As deficits are rising, the dollar has always fallen. When the dollar has found strength in the past is when U.S. deficits were shrinking. But when deficits are going up, the dollar is going down. But for some reason, people now think that rising U.S. deficits are going to be good for the dollar because the Fed is going to refuse to finance them, which is pure nonsense. The Fed is not only going to refuse to finance them, it's going to be the main financer. It is going to be buying bonds like they're going out of style. QE4 is going to be bigger than QE1, 2, and 3 combined. That is what no one seems to get. So everybody is betting on a narrative that is impossible. To me, this is an even a dumber thing than people who are buying subprime mortgages under the delusion that real estate prices are never going to fall. Right? This argument, this trade makes no sense. But in the short run, it's working because... You know, you get a lot of spec money. They go after one central bank and they keep pounding the currency until that central bank gives in and raises interest rates. Then they pick on another one. They start pounding it down, pounding it down. But meanwhile, all these speculators are loading up on these short positions and the dollar is going to turn. It's going to turn in a violent way. And I think there is going to be tremendous losses in the speculative community. And who knows who is shorting all these emerging market currencies, but they are going to get short. They're going to get caught short. And when this market turns, it's going to turn in a big way. In the meantime, all the pressure on the currencies is putting pressure on the stocks. In fact, emerging market stocks are going down more than the emerging market currency. Now, you might think that, hey, a stock is going to provide some inflation hedge, right? The emerging market currency is going down. It's inflationary. People can hedge by being in uh, stocks, but it's not happening. And I think this is a good lesson for people about what's going to happen in the United States. Because I think when the dollar starts to get killed, right, when people are fleeing the dollar and inflation really starts to pick up, stock prices are going to go down at first. So stocks are not going to be a hedge against rising inflation. So you're going to lose double in stocks. You're going to lose because the stock price is going down. And then you're going to lose again because the dollar is going down. So you have fewer dollars because your stocks have a lower price. But now those dollars buy even less because of the acceleration of inflation. Now, eventually, right, sure, if you have hyperinflation, well, then stock prices will go up nominally. But they'll really get killed in real terms. But initially, as interest rates really rise, as inflation rises, as people are worried about your currency, your stock market is going to suffer too. But right now... I think the speculators are wrong. It's not the emerging market currencies that are going to come under pressure. It's the dollar that's going to come under pressure because the Federal Reserve is not going to do what everybody thinks they're going to do because it's impossible. Because the act of doing it is what creates the next recession and the next recession is what unleashes the next round of quantitative easing which has to be enormous in order to blow air back into the mother of all bubbles that they have inflated. One thing, though, that I do want to point out again, I mentioned it once before, but it is particularly uh, glaring, is the lack of positive movement in the cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin in particular, which is supposedly the, the digital goal, the safe haven of choice during you know monetary upheaval. You've got all these emerging market currencies tumbling. Why aren't people living in emerging markets rushing to convert their depreciating currencies into Bitcoin, right? You are not getting the pop that happened years ago 
when we had other problems in global currency markets where Bitcoin did act as a safe haven recipient and that buying drove prices higher. It's not happening. I mean, as I'm talking now, Bitcoin's trading around 7650, 7700. I mean, it's it's stuck in this new range now below the old range. Remember I mentioned it looked like it was in a range between 8000 and 10000 and it broke to the downside, which is what I thought it would do. Now, I think so far 7000 is held. So we're now kind of trading between maybe 72, 7300 on the low side and maybe 7800. I haven't even seen us get back up to 8000 ever since we broke below it. But the fact that we're not getting a bid in the environment that we're in right now, to me, if I was long uh, the cryptos, which I am not, I would be selling. I mean, this is a negative sign. If we can't rally now, then we're going to go down. I mean, maybe we'll go up again after we go down, but we're going to make new lows as far as I can tell. Is it a sure thing? I mean, on this cycle, obviously nothing's a sure thing. But if you look at the charts and, you know, there's a saying, if you don't rally on good news, well, then, you know, you're going down. And this is great news. What's happening in the emerging market currency markets is great news for Bitcoin. At least it should be. And the fact that it is not benefiting from this good news, you know, confirms what I've been saying all along, that we're in a bear market here. If this was a bull market, they'd be exploding. But since we're in a bear market, they're selling into the good news, and I think there's a lot more selling coming. But what people should be doing is adding money to their Euro-Pacific accounts, taking advantage. As I said earlier in the podcast, this is a great opportunity to fade this trade. Because if you understand the big picture, that exploding deficits are not good for the dollar, they are bad for the dollar, that the U.S. government is not going to crowd out investing in the global economy. It's going to crowd out investment in the domestic economy. Right. So this whole crowding out that it's only going to apply to emerging markets is wrong-headed. There's going to be crowding out in the U.S. in reality. The world is going to be able to be fine without these dollars. They need dollars like they need a hole in the head. Everybody thinks that there's no alternative. Believe me, there's plenty of alternatives. What do they get? Nothing. Right? All they're doing is shipping us their products in exchange for paper that we print that has no real value and that cost us nothing to create. Meanwhile, its existence is causing all sorts of instability in the world. The dollar's days as the reserve currency are numbered. Exactly how large that number is, there's no way to tell for sure. But I do know they're numbered. It's going to come to an end. And when it does, it's going to come crashing down. Some people are going to make a lot and some people are going to lose a lot. And if you want to be among the people who are going to make a lot, this is what you do. You take advantage of this trader mentality that is wrong-headed. You have some incredible buying opportunities right now in emerging market stocks, even more so than emerging market currencies, because the stocks have gone down by more than the currency. So you get a better deal when you're buying the stock. Not only are you getting a beaten down currency, you're getting a beaten down stock at the same time. So it's a twofer when it turns around. Except I think when the money starts rushing back in to these emerging markets, the prices could come up maybe even faster than they went down because it's going to be the result of a lot of short covering because you have a lot of speculators that I think are going to get caught. But speculators being caught is a great way for investors to be rewarded who come in patiently and take the opposite side of a speculative trade 
that they know is going to be wrong. So again, talk to your broker at Europe Pacific Capital. There are some individual names if you have a brokerage account with us and you just want to try some individual EM names that we really like and you want to buy some of those, you can do that. You can also put more money into your managed account. You can buy a mutual fund of mine that specializes in emerging markets. There are a lot of ways to take advantage of this. And I do believe that this is a great opportunity that should be taken advantage of. Of course, I could be wrong. Obviously, when you buy stocks, you're taking risks. When you're buying foreign stocks, you're taking you know, a different risk, more risk, rest risk, depending on your perspective. Obviously, emerging markets could have more risk than developed markets. But when there's more risk, there's probably going to be more reward. It's a trade-off. And if you're willing to make the trade-off, I think this is a great time to do it. Mm-hmm.